Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Samuel 14. 1 Samuel 14. One of my favorite early church fathers, not the apostles, but the people that they discipled that came shortly after them that were a product of the churches that they established, is a man by the name of Polycarp. I know, hey, mothers-to-be, or if you're thinking about having children, I'm just going to suggest Polycarp might be a good, strong name to set your kid apart from the rest of the crowd. Uh, Polycarp lived uh, in the early 100s, and Polycarp was martyred in somewhere between 155 to 160. And we have a story that is preserved for us called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. I would commend it to you to read sometime. It's a story about how he came to to be put to death. And as the story goes, Polycarp was a a man uh, who was much older. He was 86 years old. And the Roman authorities saw him as a threat to the empire. They called men like Polycarp atheists because Ironically, they didn't support the Roman, Roman pantheon. They didn't worship the gods of Rome. And they didn't acknowledge Caesar as the son of God. And so they called the Christians atheists. So they sought to rid Rome of all the atheists. Imagine what kind of a turn of a phrase that really is, right? So they sent, uh, Caesar, or sent the Roman armies after Polycarp to put him to death, to capture him. And you can imagine a man 86 years old running from, running from uh, the, the authorities. As the story goes, the authorities eventually caught up to him on a farm, and they came in to arrest a man they had never seen who was only told to them as a threat to the empire. They walk in, and they see a feeble old man of 86 years old, and they wonder what on earth could possibly have rec- Required us to come out in the middle of the night to arrest this guy. He does not seem much like a threat to the empire. When, he got, when they got there, Polycarp asked them for an hour to pray uninterrupted. And they granted him the hour. He ended up praying for two hours, as the story goes, in the hearing of the Roman soldiers. Not only that, but he, he told all of the people in the household that were there attending to his needs to fix a meal and serve those who had come to arrest him. So he fed them their meal as he prayed for two hours. And the men were, as reported, amazed. But they took Polycarp and arrested him and took him before the consul of Rome, the kind of governor of the area of Rome. And he stood trial in front of many people there in sort of a Colosseum-type atmosphere. And all of these people who are gathered around, who are Roman citizens, who are coming to watch the death of this uh, Christian, scoffed at him and were laughing at him and mocking him as the magistrate there uh, gave him several opportunities to recant his faith and save his life. And so the magistrate says this. I'm going to read just a couple of excerpts from the martyrdom of Polycarp. You can hear this. But when the magistrate persisted and said, Swear the oath and I will release you, revile Christ. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? 
Then he said to him again, I will have you consumed by fire, since you despise the wild beasts, unless you change your mind. But Polycarp said, You threaten with a fire that burns only briefly, and after just a little while is extinguished. For you are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment, which is reserved for the ungodly. But why do you delay? Come, do what you wish. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't help read some of these accounts of the way martyrs of the faith died and think, how? How does Polycarp stand there in the midst of a room or an auditorium of people who are scoffing at him and mocking him and wanting to see his death? How does he stand there in the midst of all of them being challenged for his faith and giving just a small opportunity? No one that's there is going to think less of him if he disowns Christ. Certainly Jesus will, but not the rest of the people that are there mocking him. They wouldn't think less of him if he just said, well, fine, fine, whatever, 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 to save his life. How is it that he has the stomach the guts to stand there and say, then burn me. They sought to bound him to the the pyre, the stake in the middle of the the wood, and he said, no, don't don't bind me. I'll stay here. If if Christ gives me the ability to stand here before you and not deny him, then he's going to allow me to stand in the flames. And he did. Until he died. How does one walk with such peace in the midst of that kind of circumstance? In our passage this morning, we have a... It's really an odd passage. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's very very strange. We have Saul, the king of Israel, and Jonathan, his son, and the two are pitted against one another. But through this passage, I think we get a glimpse at the answer to that question. How does one endure against all odds with such peace? 1 Samuel 14. We're going to read the whole thing. It's really long. Bear with me. We're going to read it all. Here it goes. One day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Senna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young men who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men 
and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and we will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be a sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, the Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into, our, into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed them after him. After that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made, killed about twenty men within, as it were, half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor-bearer were not there. So Saul and Ahijah, Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into the, went into the battle. And behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews, who had been with the Philistines before that time, and who had gone up with them into the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond beth Aven. Now, And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day, so Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies." So none of the people had tasted food. Now, when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge. Uh, his father charged the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. They struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon. And the people were faint. The people pounced on the soil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate, with the blood, ate them with the blood. Then they, said, then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. 
Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourself among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox and his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox and with him that night, and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But there was not a man among all the people who answered him. Then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, uh, uh, in, in your people Israel, give Thumim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die? who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, against the Philistines. And wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkishua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab. The name of the younger was Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimahaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a tremendous word that is in front of us. Strange story that we want to make sense of and we want to apply. We pray that you give us help in the time that we have to not only understand what is being said in this passage, but also to apply it to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. The further we go into Saul's story, the stranger it seems to get. 
<laughs> I'll admit that a time or two, even this passage has had me twisted. As I'm reading this, thinking, I, I, I don't know how to make heads or tails of some of the details that are given to us in this story. It, it seems oddly strange. But what I, I've become convinced of is that that's kind of the point. We're reaching the close of Saul's story, and that last little paragraph down there that lists all his sons and daughters is really a summary of all of Saul's kingship before we begin to transition into David's monarchy. Now, Saul is still going to be on the scene all the way until the end of the book of 1 Samuel. But from really this point, maybe after the next chapter on, Saul is going to take a backstage to David, who is going to take center stage in this drama as he is anointed king over Israel. And, and as, as we get to the end, as God has rejected Saul from ruling over the kingdom of Israel, we saw that last week, we're going to see it again uh, next week, there is a bit of craziness that starts to set in on Saul's reign. He starts to go mad, and it starts to look really crazy as we read these passages. And, and, and mind you, in just a few chapters, Saul is going to go full-on crazy, all right? Just full-on, off-the-rails, insane. But he begins in even our passage this morning with this slow descent into chaos and this up-and-down feeling of the passage where one minute Saul's in a cave and the next minute he's commanding the army and the next minute he's defeating enemies and the next minute he's making this vow that seems irrational at best. This erratic kind of up-and-down feeling to the passage actually mirrors the turmoil that's inside Saul. As he's been rejected by God and he's sort of a what we would call a lame duck kind of king. There's really no point to his reign. In one sense, he's the king over Israel. So he's to be respected. He's commanding God's army in one degree or another. God chose him. God appointed him as king. But now, in another sense, he's been rejected by God. He's really not the king that God is going to have for all of Israel. And he's going to reign for many years to come. He's going to reign for a long time. And yet, still as God's rejected king. So inside this tumultuous story, you have some depictions of his failure, and then you realize at the end, it's not all failure. There's some depictions of success. It's supposed to leave the reader with asking this question as we get to the end of this passage, what do I really make of Saul? How do I even understand this person, Saul? And the answer that you really get from the Bible is, it's complicated. But to step into this story and to set it up, you remember last week that Israel had, Jonathan in particular, had, has a knack of doing this, doesn't he? Picking a fight with the Philistines. Jonathan did it in the previous passage. He picked a fight with the Philistines and he brought the full wrath of the Philistines toward him in, after this skirmish. So much so that they started to raid the town's of the Israelites, and, and they, did a, they took a tact that you might not think to take. Instead of going into battle with Israel's army, they started to attack the towns and villages and started to pull out their blacksmiths and all their weapons. <laughs> so they just removed them from having swords and spears and anybody who could sharpen them and just owned all the blacksmiths. 
If you got to come to them for weapons, it turns out now you're just a bunch of farmers with pitchforks. So it, it became relatively easy. But the, they, they kind of took away all that the Israelites had to arm themselves or to fight against the Philistines. So now they're not only a smaller army, but they're a disarmed army. Not much of an army, are they? The exception was Saul and Jonathan. They were the only ones that maintained their weapons. The rest of Israel is weaponless. And on top of all that, we find out in verse 2 that Saul's army is about 600 men. Not a very impressive force, understand. The army is weaponless. And if the army is weaponless, I suppose it doesn't matter if you've got 600 or if you've got 60,000. What does it matter if I'm charging into battle with a, a spade or a garden hoe? The passage is obviously very long, and, and we don't have time to go through verse by verse through this passage, but I do want you to understand the story that's in front of us. But then, not only to just understand the point of this story, but then let it draw us to the person that it's really about, that our attention should be on, which is the true King of Israel, Jesus Christ. And then from there, actually apply this story to us. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ? And, and how does this story actually apply to us? There's two main sections to this story, and it starts off with something amazing. And then all of a sudden, in about verse 24, it takes this awful turn. And just a very, it doesn't end where you think it might end. But what I love about this story is it's, it's true of, of what I find to be true of God's Word time and again. It's all in the details. If you, if you want to figure out why this passage is here, why are we even reading about this story, what does this actually mean for me, if you want to understand the point of this story, you've got to pay attention to all the little details along the way, which sometimes can be confusing, but when you iron them out, they're really forming a point to us. Now, the author of the, of the scriptures doesn't come out and say, hey, Saul is an idiot. It doesn't say that anywhere in it. Truth be told, he's, he's really not. But what he's going to do is present you the details of the story and let you make the conclusion. You, you make the call on this by looking at the oddities of the story. In this first section, the first 24 or so verses, we're going to see that Israel is saved by Jonathan's faith. Israel is saved by Jonathan's faith. So as chapter 14 opens, we find Saul and his army, including Jonathan, what are they doing? They're waiting. They're just sitting there. That's all they're doing. Doing nothing, really. Now Jonathan knows that there is a Philistine garrison just down the way. And so he says to his armor bearer, he gets this bright idea, and he says, hey, let's go over there. And let's cause some trouble. Jonathan is, is, seems to be notorious for doing this. This is two chapters in a row where Jonathan has had this bright idea to go pick a fight. And he doesn't tell his father because when he does this, he knows, I assume, it's like kicking a hornet's nest. And it's best if daddy just don't know. What he doesn't know won't hurt him. I'd rather ask for forgiveness than permission, I guess. But what comes next that should stand out is odd to us, are several red flags. Again, the author doesn't come out and say, and Saul was being ridiculous over here. He, he, he gives us just some red flags 
and we're supposed to draw this conclusion ourselves. Um, so, so the first red flag is obviously that the king of Israel is sitting there with 600 men, and he's, he's doing nothing, while Jonathan, his son, takes one man and goes and fights. Okay, that's red flag number one. Shouldn't the king be leading this expedition? Okay. But red flag number two is that Saul and his 600 men are sitting in the pomegranate caves, or maybe it's under the pomegranate trees. Probably what it is is a little, you know, nice little pleasant kind of valley with some nice pomegranate trees and some caves and things like that that they can sort of hide out in. Now, pomegranates are this symbol of the richness of the promised land. It's like, you know, when the promised land is described as the land of milk and honey? You know what that kind of conjures up in you and, and what it's supposed to do to Israel? It's the land of milk and honey, meaning it's the land of rest and relaxation. It's the land of luxury. It's the land of promise. It's the land God has given to us. Well, the pomegranate was actually a symbol in the Garden of Eden. It's a symbol here. It's a symbol in the tabernacle and the temple. It is designed to be the symbol of being in the presence of God. So there's a threatening army out there that has driven many of the Israelites across the Jordan, we're told, out of the Promised Land. And here is Saul with his 600 men, while there's a threatening army taking over the Promised Land, resting under the pomegranate trees. That's odd, isn't it? Red flag number two. The third red flag is we get the name of someone who is with Saul serving as priest. You see him there in verse 3. It's the only other person mentioned, besides Jonathan and his, and his armor bearer, it's the only other person mentioned there with Saul. It says his name is Ahijah, the son of Hittub. And we're told he is Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh. And he's wearing an ephod, which is this breastplate that the priest wears. So he's got this priestly authority. Now, why is that a red flag? Because if you'll go all the way back into 1 Samuel, do you remember who Eli was? Is Eli's line supposed to be maintained as the priest of Israel? No, absolutely not. In fact, is Eli's line is a rejection of the priesthood. Eli's line was not to be priest anymore. Saul was rejected as king in the previous chapter. So now, what do we have here under the pomegranate trees and the caves? The reject club. All right? Saul and his men, a bunch of rejects, are all sitting there waiting on the Philistine army to do something. Waiting on them to go home, I guess. They're certainly not going to fight them. But there's the reject society hiding out in the caves from their enemies. Now, when you compare those red flags in Saul to the elements of Jonathan's story, what you can see is that we, as the readers, are supposed to be comparing Jonathan and Saul. Here's Saul, afraid to go into battle, but yet resting under the pomegranate trees, hiding in the caves, waiting for the enemy to go somewhere else, with his band of merry rejects out in the distance somewhere, while Jonathan is going in to battle. Jonathan heads over to the garrison, and when he does, he traverses, it says, two crags. And the author actually tells us the names of the crags. 
Now, you might think to yourself, what on earth is the purpose of you telling me, I don't care what the name of these crags are, but he tells us the first is named Bozes, which if you're a student of Hebrew, then you go Bozes is actually the Hebrew word for thorny. And the second is Senna, which is the Hebrew word for shiny, which probably means slippery. The point is, if I said to you, and Jonathan had to crawl over a hill called broken glass, what would you think about that hill? Oh, that hill is not just a hill. That hill is a symbol in the story of what Jonathan is willing to do in order to fight for Israel. Jonathan is willing to lay his life on the line by crawling over broken glass just to get to the enemy, while Saul rests under the pomegranate trees out in the wilderness. His journey is treacherous. But against the person of Saul, we can clearly see that something has gripped Jonathan. Jonathan is different than his dad. Jonathan is of a whole different character altogether. What is it that is in Jonathan's heart that is seemingly missing in Saul's? Saul is sitting there. Jonathan is going. Saul has 600 men. Jonathan takes one. Saul is joined by the other band of rejects, and he's refused to obey God in the past. And Jonathan here is traversing terrible terrain just to get to where he's going. What is it that has Jonathan throwing caution to the wind while his father hides in a hole in the ground? The answer is in verse 6. Jonathan said to the young man, man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Why is Saul hiding in that cave? Because he's got few. What do you think Jonathan is saying here? Who's got a, just one man next to him? Nothing, nothing can hinder God from saving by many or by few. The statement by Jonathan is about the most concise way of pointing out the difference between Saul hiding in a hole with 600 and Jonathan going to pick a fight with the Philistines, just him and one other. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. What has gripped Jonathan's heart is faith. It is a trust in the Lord. That's it. That's all he's got. Between the two of them, him and his armor bearer, they've got one weapon. Not much armor to bear. It's trust. Jonathan, though, defies all the modern definitions of faith. Anything that you're right now thinking is faith is probably defied by Jonathan's definition here. First, notice that Jonathan's faith is not to be confused with certainty. He's not certain. He's a man of faith. That much is clear. But he's not certain. Many today are confused by that name-it-and-claim-it prosperity kind of gospel that says faith is certainty. 
But you got to have faith, you know. You got to put yourself out there. You got to be certain. Problem is you're, you're doubting. If you have faith, you'll be healed. Well, why wasn't he healed? Because he didn't have faith. So you're left there sitting there going, okay, I'm going to have faith. <clears throat> right? Have you ever tried to muster up more faith? How do you do that? Squeeze your hands real tight. Clinch up your face. More faith. That's what I want. When God closes one door, he opens a window, they say. And we're confused by it. We actually think that's what faith is. It is a certainty. It's 100% confident. Confident. So when you come to a friend who's just lost their job, or they've been diagnosed with cancer, or they've got various other things, and they're despairing, and they're going, well, I don't know how God is going to provide here, or wh what God is going to do, we, t we tell them the same thing we've heard. you got to be certain. you got to have faith. When he closes one door, he opens a window, just like we've heard them say. I heard someone say the other day, you got to have you have." got to have faith, you got to have certainty, because you have the authority to command that cancer to go away. He literally said that. And if that was true, and if you believe that, I want you to go down to the hospital, pronto, go through the cancer ward, and I want you to command that cancer to go away, and just see how much authority you actually have over it. Jonathan overturns that entire notion that faith equals certainty by saying, it may be three words. Is he certain that it's going to be? Absolutely not. He doesn't know what the Lord is going to do. But he trusts that whatever he does, it's going to be for our good and for his glory. His faith is not certain about the immediate outcome. He doesn't know what it's going to be, but he knows that whatever the solution is, God alone knows, and God alone is sovereign over it. That's what he's trusting. That's what faith is. I don't know what the outcome is. God alone knows, but what I'm trusting is him. I'm trusting that he's good. I'm trusting that he knows. I'm trusting that whatever it is, he's going to take care of it. He says, Nothing can hinder God. I know that whatever He does is going to be for His glory, and second, for my good. Nothing can hinder Him. Whatever it is, I know He's not hindered by anything that's happening down here. Jonathan has the promises of God to rest upon, yet he has no visible means to see those promises work their way out. He knows what God has said, even in the previous chapters, where God has said, you're my people. I'm going to protect. I'm going to fight for you. He's told Joshua all the way back in the book of Joshua, you show up on the battlefield. I'm going to drive out the enemies before you. He knows all those promises, but he has no visible means to see those promises actually be fulfilled. We got 600 men. No, we've got two men. We have no weapons. Me and my dad are the only ones with weapons. My armor bearer doesn't even have weapons. He's got the, the weapons that I give him. That's it. Yet so much did those promises of God mean to him that those promises altered the entire course of his behavior. You notice that? 
Jonathan is stepping out there in battle based on what God has already promised to Israel before. He knows that God is capable of driving these men out if he wants to. But I don't know what he's going to do. So Jonathan establishes this way of knowing, and, and we're not told how he establishes it, maybe by prayer or something like that, but the point is he gets to it, and he says, look, if they invite us up, then the Lord is giving us into his hands, or giving them into our hands. But if they come down to us, then it's, it's no use trying. We're just going to say, hey, how you doing? And then we're going to leave. All right. So, of course, the Philistines tell him, we got something for you. Won't you come on up here? Won't you come up here and find out? So Jonathan looks at his armor bearer and he says, ha ha, Lord's given to them into our hands. And so he goes up there and he slays, or wherever he's going, he goes there and, and he slays 20 men in total. And this outpost that's sitting there is uh, presumably in the view of all the Philistines who are, are looking at this outpost, maybe up at it or something like that. And down at base camp, once those Philistines are killed, there is an earthquake that happens. And the Philistine camp is not only mad at the attack, but now they're really confused by all the things that's happening. The Lord is actually acting on Jonathan's behalf, throwing all of, of the Philistines into confusion so that they start fighting themselves with their weapons. How does God defeat an enemy when the people of God have no weapons? Well, he turns the weapons against themselves, as it turns out what happens. So they, they start fighting each other. And so Saul finally gets wind of what's happening. It makes its way back to him. And look at verse 18. It says this. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was, ta was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle, and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great confusion." I know that some of that is hard to understand what Saul is doing here, but essentially it's this. He's about to ask the priest for, to, to consult the Lord, remember the rejected priest, to consult the Lord and figure out what I'm supposed to do. Think about that for a second. Just pause to think about that for a second. Here is Saul, who has now figured out the Philistines are thrown into confusion. He's figuring out that Jonathan and his armor bearer have caused the confusion. He understands that they're attacking themselves and they're running from two people. And he says, ask the Lord what I'm supposed to do. Think about it. Are you kidding me? And so at some point in the process, maybe it's the Lord's wisdom or just sheer reason. He finally goes, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I, stop your hand, hold on just a second. This seems obvious. We should just kind of go into battle and try to take what the Lord is given to us. God is obviously doing something here, and Saul is, is left looking for a sign? What more sign do you want? The enemy's attacking itself. So once the Philistines start attacking, Saul understands this is low-hanging fruit, and he says, let's go. And all the Philistines flee. And so Israel is saved that day by an act of faith by Jonathan. He's acting radically on God's promises. That is the point that we're to understand. Jonathan is acting radically on the promises of God. He's risking his own life. He doesn't care about his life, it seems, almost. 
He's not asking whether or not uh, God is going to give him a sign before he goes into battle. He's going and he says, God, how are you going to provide here? I need you to provide. But then things take a strange turn. Now we're going to see Jonathan is actually saved by Israel's faith. The battles, it says, are very difficult. It says in verse 24, the people are hard-pressed that day. So, in other words, these weren't easy wins. These were long, hard-fought battles. And so Saul goes from cowering in the cave, and all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, he takes a turn, and he starts commanding the military, like he has all this authority and all this courage. So he goes from cowering to taking charge of the military, and his solution is about as asinine as you might think it would be. I got an idea. Let's call the military to fast. They're fighting all day, and they're hard-fought battles. Let's starve them. And it seems like Saul is more concerned about his own name. He says, until I get vengeance for my name, until I take vengeance on all my enemies. We're on this win streak. Let's keep going. I want to avenge every enemy by nightfall. In one day, let's take them all. Now, the reason for the fast might be something like this. Jonathan went up there with one man. God caused an earthquake. All the Philistines fought against each other. And now, all we've got when I got into battle was hard-fought victory after hard-fought victory. I got an idea. Let's try this whole trust thing that Jonathan did. And let's see if we can kind of curry God's favor. So let's just starve ourselves. And let's pray that God maybe does something quick. Can I get a, one of those earthquakes again? Throw something our way. Throw me a bone. But you'll see that this has mainly two consequences. First consequence is that it causes Jonathan to sin unintentionally. He's walking along and he, after a victory, he's hungry and he finds uh, some drippings of the honeycomb and he picks it up and he eats and the sugar rush that comes to him is, brightens his eyes and he's like, woohoo, all right, let's go fight again. And he has to be told by the people around him, your father ordered us that we couldn't eat or we'd die or we'd be cursed. And even Jonathan thinks that he's being ridiculous. What on earth is he thinking? Wouldn't it be better that we ate? So then the second consequence is that the first chance the military has to, to eat, presumably when the sun goes down, they just eat the food raw. They don't even wait for it to be cooked. They just eat it blood and all which is a sin, not only is it nasty, it's also a sin. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to empty the blood on the ground. It's against the law. So as, as long as the animal was clean, they could eat as much as they want, but they weren't allowed to eat the blood. So Saul's horrible idea of starving the enemy leads to Jonathan being under a curse and all of it, the rest of his men being under sin. His sin, his idiocy, has led to the sin of basically every man around him. So all of a sudden, Saul develops this conscience, and he, has, he fears what God will think. Now, it didn't stop him last chapter from disobeying the Lord, from doing a sacrifice instead of waiting. It didn't stop him from doing that and being rejected. No, no, now he has a conscience, and he wants to pay for the sins of everybody else rather than his own sins. But then he makes another terrible decision. First, he deprived the army of food, and now what does he say? Let's go all the way through the night. I want to deprive you of food and sleep. How many of you are signing up for Saul's army? Not a single one of you. So he wants to attack during the night. 
And so he asked the Lord. The, the pre, everybody's like, okay, we'll find, we're, we're with you. We'll follow you. We'll do it through the night. And the priest says, let's just see what God thinks. Right? First bit of wisdom we've heard in this passage so far. So Saul goes, okay. So he, he takes a step back and he wants to determine whether or not this is the Lord's will. And he asks God, are you going to give them into our hands? And even God thinks this is a dumb idea. He's just silent. So Saul wants to determine which one is sinned. And so he goes through this process of elimination. Look at verse 41. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in, your, in the people Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. Then Saul said, Cast a lot between me and my son Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. Everybody else is like, what? What is that? Urim and Thummim? Essentially, they're two stones. Think of it like almost like rolling dice. They're held in the breastplate of the priest. You pull them out. You put them in a cup or a bag or something like that. You draw out one, and it tells you what God's will is. You ask a yes or no question. You ask a, a binary question, a one or a zero. God, tell me what it is. And you discern what the will of the Lord is that way, or the priest would. So essentially, Jonathan draws the short straw when it all comes down to it. And Saul asks him, what have you done? So Jonathan tells him, I ate the honey when you told us not to. But maybe it's at this point that you're asking, or maybe at some point along the way you're asking, what on earth is the point of this strange story? Saul now killing his own son? What on earth? This story has, has been building to a climax and Jonathan has oddly played the role of the hero instead of the king. And the king of Israel plays more or less the villain, at least the one you're rooting against. Now, we come to this climactic moment where, where Jonathan is at the tip of the spear and listen to his response in verse 43. Look at it. Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. What is that? How does Jonathan stand there at the tip of the spear and say to his father, he doesn't, he doesn't say, but I did it without knowing. I, di I didn't understand. He doesn't say, I, 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 yes, okay, I disobey. I'm sorry. He says, here I am. I will die. How? You don't even defend yourself? He's confronted with mortality, with certain death, staring him in the face, and he says, here I am, I will die. And worse yet, Saul's ready to kill his own son. Now remember, a couple chapters ago, there were some people that were talking bad about Saul, and they wanted to, the, his men wanted to put him to death, and he says, no, God has worked salvation for Israel today. No one's going to die. We were told in this passage that God worked salvation for Israel that day through Jonathan, but now it's okay to kill your own son? Because he violated some curse that you irrationally threw out there? He's ready to kill his own son. Well, the people have had enough. And maybe it's after following after the faith of Jonathan, they also step out there 
on faith and they say, no, no, no. We've had enough of this. Not one hair on Jonathan's head is going to be hurt. In other words, if you want him, you got to come through us first. Now, Saul is clearly not ready to take on 600 men or even more. But they stand in between the wrath of Saul to protect Jonathan. But let's rewind the drama to the beginning of the chapter to figure out how we got here. And what we'll see is Saul sitting under the pomegranate tree, hiding in a cave with 600 men, while Jonathan fought a garrison of Philistines by himself. We'll see Jonathan asking God, if you will, rather than seeking to divine an answer like Saul is. Then we'll see Saul, time after time, shepherding his people into unrighteousness, rather than to trust in God, into sin, rather than obedience. I mean, if you're going to curse people so that they'll die if they eat, wouldn't you make sure that everybody in the army heard that? Including your own son? Wouldn't you make sure? But he didn't. But just evaluate the scene for a moment. If we're, if we're going to say, that's Jonathan's perspective here, how are you going to kill a man of faith? Let's rewind and let's look at things from Saul's perspective. Are you going to tell me that faced with the odds of 600 versus many thousand, you're going to charge into battle? Are you telling me that you're the one that's going to lead the military with no weapons to fight the enemy? Building off promises that have no visible means of support? Are you telling me that unlike Saul, I would have faith? How can Saul not see the promises of God? How can he not charge into battle? He doesn't charge into the battle the same reason you and I probably wouldn't. Because he's got 600 men and he's got no weapons. What Saul is doing actually makes physical, logical sense. If you were looking at the two, Jonathan and Saul, which one to you makes more sense in his actions? Jonathan taking one man into battle with virtually nothing to defend themselves? Or Saul who's going, we don't have any weapons to fight, so we need to hide out here? Well, it's probably Saul. But here's Jonathan. Maybe he'll do it again. I don't know what, how God is going to fix this situation, but who knows? Maybe he'll give the Philistines into our hand. While Saul is saying, maybe can we get another earthquake? Just, <laughs> I'd like one of those. But this is precisely the point. Saul is not an idiot. He's not. He makes rational sense. He's actually a tremendous military commander. The author even tells us at the end of this chapter he conquered a lot of people. He was a valiant warrior, a brave fighter. He routed all of his enemies. He plundered them. And he recruited the strongest men into his military. But what you're seeing in this story is a drastic difference between Saul and Jonathan. And what is that difference if you were to put your finger on it? If you had to emulate one, Saul or Jonathan, who is it that you would pick? Well, you'd obviously pick Jonathan over Saul, but why? Because Jonathan lived by faith. That's why. Because he lived by faith. It is irrational to leave your post and attack a field of men by yourself. We saw him do something similar in the previous passage. But you understand, Jonathan didn't fly off into battle. What he did was he made himself available to the Lord's will to work itself out through him. Now, if we just stop there, 
We might draw a straight line to us and we might say something like, therefore, go be a Jonathan. Go live by faith. Dare to be a Jonathan. Emulate Jonathan's faith. No doubt we've heard sermons like that. But that's not the point. The point of the whole Bible is to point to Christ. The point of the entire Bible is to point to Christ. What the author is actually doing is exposing the weakness of Israel's kingdom. And you feel it in the story even if you don't immediately see it. If the king does not trust God, then the whole kingdom is going to falter. It cannot survive if the king doesn't wholly trust God. Without Jonathan in this story, you might think that Saul was making a wise choice. The only choice that he could make. Wait the Philistine army out. But when you see Jonathan's faith followed by a massive earthquake and all of the Philistines turning against each other, what what are you left to say about Saul? What are you doing? Trust God. Go out there into the field of battle. Fight. Israel has to have a king who is after God's own heart. That is the point here. Israel has to have a king who is after God's own heart, who we're going to see the the next couple of chapters actually lead us to. In fact, coming soon is a passage where God's chosen king is going to go into battle against all odds and he's going to take the armor off. You remember? And he's going to go into the field of battle against a person of impossible size. And he's going to stand there and conquer that uncircumcised Philistine. Because his trust in God. But you understand, David is a mere shadow of what is to come. The king God's people actually need is coming. Jesus is the only one who combines the faith that we see there in Jonathan. The bravery we see manifested in David. And so many other kings like him. If you come to this story and you walk away with be like Jonathan, then you're making a mistake. The point is, God's people need real and lasting deliverance, and it can only be accomplished by a king who isn't afraid of death. That's faith. Jonathan goes out there unafraid of death. And that's what God's people actually need, is a king who will go and fight for them unafraid of death. Friend, Jesus is that king. He came to the field of battle actually knowing He was going to die. He came for that purpose without a weapon in His hand. He he didn't take on the wrath of the Philistines. He took on a more fierce opponent. He took on God Himself. He went to the cross and took the wrath of God the Father in your place. And He knew He was going to do that. He took on your punishment so that you might be ransomed from sin and death. So now, brothers and sisters, when you take this passage and through it you see it's magnifying the work of Christ on your behalf, then it should cause us to ask, if I'm following that King, if I'm walking with the man who perfectly obeyed God and did not fear death at all, but took on all of this to the cross, then I have to ask, to what is He leading me? What is Christ leading me to? And what is He leading me through? The pomegranate trees 
are sure enough the end goal, but not yet. Now the prosperity gospel hucksters will tell you, dare to be a Jonathan and put out your seed of faith and God will shake the ground. You can almost hear it coming from their mouths. Stop it. God shook the ground 2,000 years ago when Christ died. That was the earthquake. That's when He shook the ground. God is not waiting in heaven for you to put money on the line with a small pledge of $10. If we're following our King in faith, then we're putting way more than $10 on the line. We're putting our very lives on the line. What does faith look like for you now? It's putting your life on the line. We're willing to be humiliated, excoriated, even decapitated for the sake of the gospel that it would be proclaimed in every tribe, in every language, in every nation and tongue. We're not fighting with swords and spears. We're fighting a war that is not against flesh and blood. Anyone can put $10 on the line. But for the sake of the gospel, can you say, here I am, I will die. How do people go into foreign countries and share the gospel? Knowing that these people will kill me. How do business executives go into boardroom meetings in this culture and say, we're going to be closed on Sundays. Or no, we're not going to pay allegiance to that group because everything they do is against the God of the Bible. How does an executive do that? How do employees go into work and say, no, I'm not going to bend the knee and no, I'm not going to kiss the ring because to do so would be to deny Christ even if it means I'm terminated. The same way Polycarp faced the flames unwilling to spare his own life. We cannot fear he who can kill body but has no power over the soul. That's the point. Because Christ fought this way, because he did not fear even losing his own life, knowing he would be resurrected, we have to fight the same way, knowing that what I'm living for is not in the here and now. It is on the other side of death. I know and trust in the resurrection of the dead. I trust that there waits for me a kingdom that is beyond compare. We serve a king who conquered death and who is able to deliver us in any and every circumstance by many or by few. Then my walking daily over my own sin, walking daily over my own fear that, 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 that would tell me to keep quiet about my faith, my walking daily over those small opportunities to, to compromise my integrity, walking daily over my own preferences in order to serve someone else. That whole process is fueled by the Spirit, the same Spirit that was in Christ, the same Spirit that was in Jonathan, the same Spirit that was in David. It's walking by that same Spirit daily. And in this way, we walk after our King who is leading us to the pomegranate trees. But that's His promise to you. That's the outstanding promise that He's got for you is pomegranate trees on the other side. And right now, you have no visible means that He's actually going to accomplish that. But it's trust that He will. It's not yet though. There's still plenty of dying we've left to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
thank you for this word and, and, and what it means to us as Christians. I pray for us that you would give us the kind of boldness that we see emulated perfectly in Christ. That we see your people have time and again. Knowing, trusting that what we believe is not a lie. That you have what is good for us that is always for your glory. And that you will gain glory by seeing us raised from the dead, by raising us from the dead, demonstrating that even death has no power over your people. We thank you for what we have in Christ. We pray that we may only realize it in Jesus' name. Amen.